0: You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin. Subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie. Dr Mark Jones is Assistant Professor in Global History at University College Dublin. A specialist in the history of political violence, war and revolution, his publications include Founding Weimar, Violence, and the German Revolution of 1918-1919. to His latest book is 1923, The Forgotten Crisis in the Year of Hitler's Coup, and it's this book on which this podcast episode is based. It's entitled The Murder of Walter Rathenau and the Survival of Weimar Democracy. Mark Jones on the year 1923.
1: After the First World War, Germany was a liberal democracy and a republic. It was known as the Weimar Republic. After the town of Weimar, where the Constitutional Assembly that drew the Republic's democratic constitution first met in the spring of 1919. On the 22nd of June 1922, the Weimar Republic's foreign minister was late for a meeting at the German Foreign Office in central Berlin. Outside his villa in the western suburbs, his driver, a man named Josef Protzler, was waiting patiently. Protzler was driving a cabriolet When the minister finally came out, he left the hood of the cabriolet down so the minister could smoke his morning cigar, as usual. Not far from the minister's home, as Protzler approached a bend in the road, he slowed down. A group of builders nearby had the best view of what happened next. They noticed the scene because as Protzler's car slowed, they heard the roar of another car, a large Mercedes, that sped up alongside it. Then they heard sounds that were out of place in the posh suburbs of western Berlin. First, there was the rat-tat-tat of gunfire, then the dull thud of a grenade. Then they heard tires screeching as one car sped away while the other slowly rolled to a stop. At a nearby tram stop, a nurse, Helene Kaiser, who was on her way to work at the famous Charité Hospital in the centre of Berlin, was startled by what happened. She first thought that the gunshots had been fired by a man hiding in a bush. But once the minister's car came to a stop, she started running towards it. She was the first person to reach it. When she got to it, smoke was still rising above it and a small fire in the back. She's put out the fire by standing on the flames. Then she discovered that Protzler was shaken, but unhurt. On the back seat, the minister was lying on his side, bleeding heavily. She screamed at Protzler, Quick, quick, to a doctor! Then she took the injured man in her arms and held him as Protzler got the car going again, heading back in the direction that they had came from. But her attempts to save the foreign minister's life were in vain. He died in her arms he'd been shot several times and the grenade had exploded in close proximity to him. His name was Walter Rathenau. Rathenau was an extraordinary individual. He was born in Berlin in 1867. At that time, his father, Emile Rathenau, owned a small but failing engineering company. In 1881, at the World Fair in Paris, Emil Rathenau saw Thomas Edison present his electric light bulb in Europe. The event transformed the Rathenau's family forever. Emil and Edison reached a deal to bring the new technology to Germany. In the process, he founded a company that still exists today, AEG. Its success transformed Emil Rathenau from the manager of a failing mid-sized company into a member of the German industrial elite bring him to the same level as somebody like Werner von Siemens, the founder of the Siemens dynasty. During the First World War, AEG made more shells for Germany than any other company with the exception of Krupp Steelworks. By that time, Walter Rathenau had become an important manager and board member. He was a passionate German nationalist. But Walter Rathenau was also Jewish, and as the war worsened, and German anti-Semitism grew in importance as many people sought scapegoats to blame for the absence of an expected German victory. Walter Rathenau was increasingly targeted after the war, even though Rathenau argued in october nineteen eighteen publicly that German General Erich Ludendorff should be dismissed and that Germany should continue to fight the war after the war. nonetheless, the anti-Semites blamed him. For Germany's defeat. But despite knowing the backlash that he would face if he quit his job on the board of AEG in favour of becoming a minister, in 1921 that's exactly what Rathenau did. He turned his back on his position in business to serve as the Minister for Reconstruction before later becoming German Foreign Minister in January 1922. Rathenau got these jobs because he was a visionary, Just months before he died, he appealed to European leaders to end the hatreds that had lingered since the end of the First World War. Had he lived, it is not unreasonable to argue that his policies were an attempt to push Germany and Europe away from the dangers of nationalism and towards policies of European integration, like those that followed the horrors of the Second World War, eventually leading to the establishment of the European Union, but which could not occur in the aftermath to the 1st. Rathenau even went as far as reaching agreement with the French Minister for Reconstruction for a plan to rebuild the parts of France that were the size of the Netherlands that had been destroyed by the war, using German companies in French territory, which today might seem rather obvious, but which in the aftermath to the First World War was a radically visionary plan a plan so radical that it had to fail because French business opposed the idea that German companies could work on French soil, and because the British government in London, led by David Lloyd George, were also opposed to the idea because it might have led to a stronger cooperation between Paris and Berlin, leaving London excluded. Rathenau's murderers were three young men. Their names were Erwin Kern, who fired the pistol, Hermann Fischer, who threw the grenade, and Ernst Werner Cheko, who drove their car. They belonged to a right-wing terrorist organisation called the Organisation Consul. They believed that Rathenau had betrayed Germany. Above all, they hated him because Rathenau was Jewish. Their identities were discovered when a student, Willy Gunther, who knew of their plan to murder Rathenau, boasted about the plan while drunk amongst other students. One of those students informed the police, and after the police arrested Gunther, he confessed. Ernst Werner Checo was the first to be discovered. He had fled to his uncle's estate in eastern Germany, but when his name was published in the newspaper, Ernst Werner Checo's uncle handed him in to the police. He later told the court that when he first saw that his nephew was wanted, he thought initially to hand him a pistol and to tell him to go and commit suicide in nearby woods because he had brought, brought disgrace upon their family. Kern and Fisher stayed on the, run, on the run for longer. But on the 17th of July, 1922, they were found by police. They were hiding in a medieval castle known as Burg Salak, which was owned by a supporter of their organisation. Refusing to surrender to police, a gunfire quickly began. Kern was shot dead almost instantly. When he was unable to save his friend's life, Fischer then committed suicide. After their deaths, they were buried nearby. Students from the University of Jena apparently fought over the right to carry their coffins. In the summer of 1933, just months after Hitler was appointed as Chancellor of Germany, Kern and Fischer's bodies were exhumed and reburied. Nazi Germany honoured them because it viewed them as part of the spiritual foundation of National Socialism. If it is remembered at all today, this is the way that we understand the murder of Walter Rathenau. The murder of the Weimar Republic's foreign minister in Western Berlin in the summer of 1922 is understood as a sign of German democracy's weakness. It's understood as a warning of what was to come. When it is told... It is recalled as a part of the history of the rise of the Nazis. By remembering Rathenau's murder in this way, we also forget that in the days after his murder, just over a decade before Hitler became Chancellor, there was a mass outpouring of support for democracy, condemnation of anti-Semitism and sympathy with Rathenau himself. His killers had assassinated him because they had a plan That was based on the hope that in the aftermath of the assassination, they would destabilise the German Republic, leading to uprisings that would end with its replacement by an authoritarian regime that was committed to a war of revenge against the French. But their plan triggered the exact opposite. Some accounts even suggest that millions of Germans demonstrated in support of their republic and its dead foreign minister. Support of the democracy were even further angered because the day before he was shot in Berlin, the populist politician Karl Helferding had blamed Rathenau for all that had gone wrong in Germany since the end of the First World War. Helferding had coined the phrase, away with Erzberger, in reference to the German finance minister, Matthias Erzberger, who had signed the armistice in November 1918 for Germany when none of Germany's generals were willing to do so, and later been gunned down by other members of the organization council in the summer of 1921 the day before rathenau was murdered in berlin in 1922 helferding had even argued that rathenau should be hung for his crimes now that rathenau had actually been murdered millions of germans blamed helferding for causing the conditions in which such a murder could take place the president of Germany, Friedrich Ebert, the founding father of the Weimar Republic, even accused his killers of not belonging to the German nation and of not being real Germans. There were powerful demands that the government of the Republic in Berlin needed to do more to defend German democracy. There were even calls for new laws to deal with the violence of the minority. The question we have to ask is where did this support for Weimar democracy go? What undermined it? And what meant that the attempts to re-establish and re-found the republic in the second half of 1922 did not ultimately end in the creation of a successful and stable democratic political culture that could have withstood the threat posed by Nazism and communism between 1930 and 1933? The year 1923 itself is a crucial answer to this question. I start my book on this year in the summer of 1922 with the murder of Rathenau because I want to show how much democratic potential was there and then to explain how that democratic potential was eroded by the course of events in that year. 1923 must be remembered as Hitler's breakthrough year. At the start of that year, his party had around 8,000 followers. In November, when he launches his putsch in the Beer Hall of Munich, the first time that Hitler tries to seize power, it has risen to 50,000. The circumstances that made it possible for Hitler's growth to be so spectacular during such a short period of time begin on the 11th of January 1923, when French Prime Minister Raymond Poincaré, an opponent of the kind of conciliation that men like Rathenau wanted to make a feature of European politics in the 1920s, sent about 100,000 French soldiers into the German industrial district of the Ruhr to occupy the heart of the German coal mining industry. That occupation triggered a spiral of events that almost destroyed German democracy. The Ruhr was a unique place, As many as a half a million men worked underground in its coal pits at any given time. There was so much smoke in the Ruhr's sky that it had a distinctive pink-red colour. Poncarré sent the soldiers there to provide military support for what the French leader termed a technical expedition. That expedition was led by around 100 engineers. Their goal was to establish if Germany really was paying its reparations in kind to the best of Germany's abilities. Reparations in kind included coal and wood. But France's goals over the course of the occupation quickly became more radical. Poincaré even toyed with the idea of annexing the Ruhr district and making it a part of France, thus expanding French state power and fundamentally weakening France's most important opponent in Europe, Germany. Without an army to fight back, the leaders of the Weimar Republic called upon the workers of the Ruhr to passively resist. In reality, this meant that the workers of the Ruhr went on strike. The Weimar Republic, you may remember, did not have an army at this time capable of fighting back because of the Treaty of Versailles prevented it from having an army of more than 100,000 men. The ensuing strike in the Ruhr was one of the largest state-sponsored strikes to have ever taken place. Initially, the German leaders responsible for this decision, including Wilhelm Kuno, a businessman who had become German Chancellor in november nineteen twenty two, thought that the strike would last at most for a couple of weeks. To pay the striking workers, the Reichsbank started printing extra notes. Like Kuno, the president of the Reichsbank, Rudolf Havenstein, thought that the note printing would be sustainable. He knew that printing extra notes would lead to inflation but he had bet that the reserves of the Reichsbank could be used in international markets to maintain the value of the German mark until the occupation of the Ruhr was resolved. But the occupation created politics that radicalised quickly and there could be no de-escalation. Havenstein quickly lost his bet and by the summer of 1923, it was clear that the German economy was on the brink of ruin. The summer of 1923 became the summer of zeros. This was the time when German banknotes had increasingly large numbers from millions to billions to trillions. This is the time for which you have seen images from Weimar Germany with people pushing wheelbarrows full of paper notes with extraordinary numbers of zeros on those notes. This is the time when children played with worthless banknotes in the streets. It is a time of economic collapse. A modern industrial society was trying to function without a system of payments. Money had lost its meaning. For farmers, the reaction was obvious. There was no point in selling food to urban dwellers if those urban dwellers could not pay for it with meaningful money. They began to hoard food, which created conditions that were like those of famine. In urban areas of Germany, the results were starvation. German children, over the course of 1923, stopped growing at normal rates. Within the Ruhr district itself, hundreds of thousands of them became refugees and were placed in programs run by charities and the state to put them on farms and industrial care homes in unoccupied Germany. Had they stayed in the Ruhr, many of them may have starved to death. Other Germans survived thanks to charities like the Quakers, which established food kitchens, soup kitchens all over Germany, providing people with a meal of soup to keep them alive. But the political consequences remained as they had been. Germany refused to back down just as France refused to back down and both countries became locked in a crisis from which neither wanted to walk away. Poincaré knew that he had the resources to ultimately defeat Germany. The combined weight of these crises threatened to unravel the Weimar Republic entirely. By the autumn of 1923, mass strikes and angry workers in unoccupied Germany led Germany's communists to believe that the time had come for them to emulate the Bolsheviks and Lenin in 1917 and to seize power in a German Red October. In the Rhineland, separatist nationalists who wanted to establish a republic of the Rhineland with the backing of France, believed that it was a time for them to break away from Germany. And in Bavaria, Hitler and like-minded opponents of the Weimar democracy thought that it was time for them to emulate Mussolini and march on Berlin. Remember, Mussolini has become prime minister of Italy in October of 1922. And so the idea of the march on Rome is very present in German nationalist thinkers like Hitler. Hitler himself believes that he is the German Mussolini. In my book on 1923, I show how these threats grow in significance, how they influence each other, and eventually also how and why they fail to overthrow the democratic order. Hitler himself is abandoned by like-minded conservatives when they realize that the pro-democratic forces in the state of Prussia including supporters of the SPD, will be too strong for them to be defeated and that they will lose any attempt to march on Berlin and that's why they back away. That's not an option for Hitler because unlike fellow-minded travellers on the conspiratorial path who have met in meetings in secrecy, Hitler has publicly spoken all year about the need to march on Berlin and about the need for violence. He has put himself on a stage upon which he must act and he does so on the 8th of November, launching a putsch in Munich which lasts for only 20 hours and which is quickly defeated. In its aftermath, the defenders of Weimar democracy think that they will never hear his name again. One of them writes, looking back on the year, that descendants of Germans from this time will look back and wonder about the hatred and chauvinisms of the early 1920s they will wonder, how was this possible? Their success in defending democracy against the threats from the far left and far right is a reminder today that when Democrats stand up for what they believe in, they can be successful against all of their foes.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History in University College Dublin. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie.